Ahem. This is what we you call good content, buddy. You start everyone this way. That's your intro. <laughs> <laughs> that that red line. <laughs> Thank goodness you're gonna cut that. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm Steve Gaynor, and you're listening to Tone Control, conversations with video game developers. And today I'm sitting across from Bennett Foddy. Uh, we're at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco uh, for the week. How's it going, Bennett? Uh, it's going great. Good. Uh, you doing any talks at GDC this year? I, I have a talk in the Education Summit oh, cool. uh, about uh, my, my Game a Week class. I'm giving that with Doug Wilson. Who... Oh, yeah. And that's it. Yeah, it's light GDC for me. Good. Um, as, as implied, Bennett is an educator, but uh, also the creator of a bunch of games that hate you, like Quop and GURP, and uh, most recently, Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy, mm-hmm. uh, which was like a crazy streaming hit. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we... And before, like... Australian, mm-hmm. former musician, former musician. So yeah, so we have a lot to talk about, right? Um, I think that I must have first met you at a GDC, like a like a probably like the GDC before Gone Home came out or something like that. Because I know you play tested it for us, or or maybe you just played the the IGF version because you were a, a judge or something. No, I play tested a very late version. Okay. okay. Uh, I, I guess I met you at a party. You sent me the one of the last versions. I told you it was weird that all the lights were uh, monochromatic. <laughs> that they all the lights were the same color. That they weren't more warm. Yeah, I wanted I wanted you to use the light a little bit more theatrically. Oh, okay. And, and you know it was quite close to ship, but I think yeah. you did go through and change the color of some of those lights. Maybe. I mean, we definitely. There, there was, there was almost certainly a late light tuning pass, yeah. but and like you're saying, basically for like stagecraft to, to like right. highlight different areas. And right. When you come into the bathroom, there's like a kind of ghostly green glow now, and you uh, go into the room with the TV and the kind of uh, warning alert is on. That's yeah, it's all very blue. blue yeah, right. yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm taking credit for that. Yes, yeah, uh, no, that, that's all. <laughs> color, all your sales. Color consultant. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we've known each other for a while, um, mm. and I, you know, we make games that are very, very different. But I think we're also like fans, or at least appreciators of each other's games. I definitely, I, it's great to talk to people on Tone Control that have a very specific point of view or mm. th- something that they're trying to get to or get across um, with their games. And I feel like you know most of your games are really that kind of ongoing practice of trying to reach. A thing like mm-hmm. an ideal almost, yep. um, but before you even started making games, what part of Australia are you from? I'm from Melbourne. Okay, I love Melbourne. I've been there a couple times. Hmm. Um, did you did did you grow up your whole life there until you came to the states? Yeah, okay. I I never actually I was convinced I was never going to leave Melbourne. You know, I had all my teenage shit going on, yeah. and then I was like, yeah, people who leave <laughs> here. Are just kidding themselves, right? Yeah. Everything you could want is here. That's what I used to think. It seems like playing. a great city. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I 
roasted. <laughs> a heavy, uh, just a dark roast from Well, let me Australia. say this. When I left, it, it's changed so massively. It's 10 okay. years now since I left, I left Melbourne. One of the things that's happened there is... is it's now an indie game mecca. Yeah. It's now a gourmet food mecca. It remains a live music mecca, which it has been for a really long time. Yeah. So it got a lot cooler after I left. Okay. Much like my old band, you know. Like there's... <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like Bennett Potty leaving just makes things cooler. Yeah. Weird. I do think I do think that Melbourne has gotten pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so, I, I've only been there since you left. Yeah, and it did seem pretty cool. Yeah, that's right. And the food was good. So I'm just dragging down <laughs> New York City right now. That's... <laughs> well, as soon as you leave, it'll be great again. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, so so you you grew up in in Melbourne, and what I know about your like pre games life is that you were in a a now well known band, Cut Copy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what got you into music and what got you into that band? Um, it's it's a it's not a very romantic story. It's my favorite kind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unromantic, unremarkable. Well, I, you know, I think it is actually kind of interesting story. So, okay. I, but but only if I tell it in a in a way. Juice it up. I can juice it up for you. Um, you know, the, 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 the unromantic version is that, you know, a good friend of mine who I'd known since we were five, four or five years old, uh, had become a musician and he had a record deal. He had a EP out and he decided he wanted to turn it into a, a live band. Okay. Uh, because live bands, it was like, you know, getting to be like turn of the millennium live bands were starting to become like a cool, loose little bubble, uh, like mixing live instruments in, in electronica was becoming okay. a little bubble. And uh, he wanted to, to sort of pivot to that and he needed a band. Okay. But being a kind of electronic DJ, he didn't know anyone who could play an instrument. Yeah. Uh, so he asked if I wanted to play bass in his band. Huh, okay. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, as a child, I played cello for 12 years very poorly, but I thought <laughs> being able to play cello poorly would get me to be able to play bass poorly, <laughs> which is true. Yeah. It's yeah. basically the same skill, uh, pun not intended. Um, so yeah, so that was, and that was that. So okay. we just, we, we, because there was already this record deal and so yeah. on, it's like the first show we had was in front of like thousands of people at oh, a wow. festival. So, huh. um, that's wild. Yeah. It was, and it was, yeah, that was, it was stressful, yeah. uh, but it went badly and it doesn't matter if things go badly. So then it went fine. Yeah. Um, I thought, for some reason I thought you had been like a keyboardist. I also played keyboard. Okay. Cause it also doesn't matter if you do that badly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so far we've roasted Melbourne, keyboardist, <laughs> bassist. Yeah. Not cellist. They're cool. <laughs> a, good, a good cellist is very cool. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I was never good at that either. Okay. Um, so, so basically, you had a friend who who needed a backup band, and you you jumped on on board. Yeah, but I think yeah. you know, you're what rolling back it? a little bit. It's sort yeah. of like the the origin story of that was you know he was he was like being like a real DJ for college radio in, uh-huh. in Melbourne, and and you know just playing songs, yeah. and getting really interested in in that stuff. And then he started to think, well, I can use a computer, and I have good taste in music. I should start writing music, and um. You know, I sort of, to cut a long story very short, I was just like, well, we should, you know, we should start sending, I've got a CD burner. Right. I know how to make a CD. Yeah. I know how to, like, uh, master a track, because I've been 
a nerd on a computer for many years. <laughs> um, I'll just master your demo and we'll send it out to, to record companies. And we just had this kind of uh, that that sort of middle class white boy presumption that uh, why wouldn't that work out? You don't yeah. need actual skills or expertise. <laughs> you just have to try. You have to be able to use GarageBand. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we were lucky that it was at a period of time, just a particular time and a place. Yeah. And we found the right record boss who was looking for a particular kind of thing. And this was exactly what he was looking for in style. And he just thought, well, uh, I, I presume, yeah. uh, he, he, he thought, well, I can get these guys to polish it up over time. Okay. Throw a little bit yeah. of money yeah. at this, give them some experience. And so, yeah, it's like... I don't know. That's it's that funny um, blind, uh, blind co confidence that comes out of middle class privilege. Yeah, and being totally naive. Yeah, and, completely naive in yeah. a way that I would be scared to do all the stuff that we did now. Right. Um, but at the time, just it just seemed like nothing could go wrong. Huh. And so yeah, that's how I wound up in a band by you know sheer force of idiocy. <laughs> And I think some good musical taste on my friend's behalf. Sure. Who was writing all the music. So. so did you end up like like touring with the band and going all over the place and playing shows and festivals? Australian, and Australian touring, yeah. We okay. did a bunch of festivals. Uh, we played with a bunch of uh, with foreign bands. And I think then the moment came, it was time to go and support Franz Ferdinand on their US tour, which was going to be our first foreign tour. Yeah. And it was just clear that that was going to have to be my job. Right. Uh, rather than a thing that I did on weekends, yeah, and I didn't want it to be my job for huh. my life, so I was just like, yeah, this is I got to step out. Yeah. Well, why was that? Why didn't I want it to be my job? Yeah. Why didn't you want to be a professional, fucking rock musician? I feel like a lot of people do want that to be their job. I don't really orient to glamour. I mean, that's that was not working for me in the way it was for the other guys. I don't think I have to be careful because every time I mention cut copy in an interview, they get a Google alert. Uh, sure. And then <laughs> <laughs> Last time it happened, I got a text message with them flipping the bird to, to their phone with the interview on it. Um, but I mean, like, what did you want to do instead? Because I feel like a lot of people, if they're a teenager and is like, "Hey, do you want to go do a U.S. tour with your band?" It's like, yeah. Well, I was mid twenties. Okay, I, sure, right. I was working on a PhD in philosophy. Oh, okay. And that seemed like at the time, it seemed like that was the thing I was actually going to be doing. Yeah. But really, I think what I wanted was. Um, dominion over my time, which is all I've really, I, I only ever have wanted two things in my professional life, uh, complete dominion over my time, more or less, yeah. you know, I can't, I don't really want to do a nine to five with a manager because I, I sort of work best if I can whimsically switch tasks, right? Okay. We just, we just came from listening to Jason Rohrer talk about his process, yeah. which is kind of like opposite this right he he has to decide what his task is and lock himself to it it's very regimented and right. very like dedication focused like yeah. here's the thing do the thing in a specific amount of time yeah. uh, you know I, he said some things that i agree with like you know working for a really long period of time the, he thinks that that flow is uh like idolizing flow is a mistake because your your most of your flow work is not actually good work i think that's all correct um, yeah, it was an interesting perspective that I hadn't heard before. I'm hoping they're going to put that one up for free on the vault. Yeah, I hope so to too. To but uh, but for me, my best periods of productivity have come from from times where I'm able to task switch as soon as I get bored. 
Yeah. Uh, because trying to force myself to work while I'm bored, I can do it, but it's just it's just five percent as fast uh, as everything else. So I need yeah. dominion over my time. Um, so and, and the other thing I need is the ability to have uh, intellectual conversations like the one that we're having now. Mm-hmm. And I think this has changed a lot for from cut copy because they're now uh, highly professionalized and they're you know in a world of sort of senior musicians and they do a lot of so they probably have both of those things now but at the time um touring life was more like for a half hour show or for an hour show we would have like fully 16 hours of waiting around yeah in a context where i think because of our sort of junior status and because of uh you know australian norms of toxic masculinity and because of kind of wanting to be rock stars we couldn't have intellectual conversations right um well but that's but that's always kind of true like honestly this is part of the reason that i do this podcast because no one ever talks about real stuff like where did you come from what do you value why are you doing what you do if you don't like have an excuse Right. Yeah, you know, and I mean, that's not explicitly true, but it's very rare not, you know, like, and, and I, I think, think that's true in my life. I mean, I think, which is, which is great. Right. But right. I had to pursue that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So going as, into, as have I, right. <laughs> but what has drawn me into, in, what drew me into philosophy as, you know, as a student, uh, you know, I was sure of one thing after I graduated college, which was my parents were academics. I knew for, for sure that was the one thing I was not going to do. But what, <laughs> but what sucked... <laughs> just, let me, let me just take a quick sip of water and ask you where you were now. <laughs> yeah. No, so I did, in a way, gravitate into the sort of family business in a way. But yeah. what convinced me that my read was wrong uh, on that was... It, it is, and it remains, a, a venue for people who are interested in in intellectual conversations and it's not the only one i don't want to say that but it is it is one yeah and what i love about uh working at nyu is that it's my colleagues are intellectuals who aren't just interested in talking about games they're interested in ideas um but that was all usually true of of philosophers as well and the thing that i most enjoyed about my my career in philosophy was if you knock on someone's door and you're like, what do you think of this idea? And it can be about anything. People will engage with it in a really serious way. And you, you know, a lot of being a professional philosopher is going for walks in the woods and talking about ideas for hours. And you know, I love that. I mean, yeah. For me, it's, that's, that's where I'm at my most uh, satisfied and inspired and, and feeling kind of good about, about my life. And, you know, I, 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 I don't think that being a touring musician, at least a junior touring music- musician, has much of that at all, comparatively. Right. And I didn't have any power to control that either. It was like sort of beyond my, my power to yeah. change that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I just had to make a choice. Well, I mean, it sounds like you were in two very different worlds at that time. You were both in the philosophy PhD program and in the, like, playing shows, right. you know, at clubs. World. Right. Then it was sort of a direct comparison. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, so you know, I... I I quit the band, uh, and you know, they replaced me with a synthesizer, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a sequencer, and that was... And my is going to do that before long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they eventually found a much more talented bassist to, mm. to replace me, but, um, uh, so at, at that point, you know, I, I'm like, I'll focus on my dissertation full-time, let's just focus on that, and... 
I think I started to get an inkling at that stage that I wasn't going to be satisfied that way either, just mm. be purely in this kind of very dry world of ideas. Okay. Because I started seeking other creative outlets. Yeah. And I fell in with a the world's pushiest entre- um, entrepreneur, <laughs> a good friend of mine who uh, had a he had a lead on making TV commercials for. Uh, for cell phone ringtones. Okay. And again, same same sort of point of view. I was like, yeah, I can do that. Okay. <laughs> I've sure. never done that before. That would be all right. What, some sort of crazy frog? Sure. Yeah, it was exactly, we were in competition with crazy frog. <laughs> where our client was. So, you know, we'd, I'd get a script. I would kind of feverishly make some sort of 3D animations yeah. in uh, 3D Studio. And I would throw together a 15 second jingle <laughs> and he would run around trying to get voice actors to read the script and and uh we would like ftp the whole thing to the national broadcaster and uh it was you know satisfied was scratching an itch that the philosophy thing was not scratching yeah which i mean was the itch basically like being productive like making not not tangible in the sense of like physical objects but you know it's like i made a commercial and it has been made yeah and it's out there yeah Yeah, people can see it and i could i could sometimes be watching saturday morning tv and one of my ads would come on like there's directness yeah and i wasn't proud of the work you know i'm slightly ashamed of the work (laughs) but i'm i mean i'm i'm proud of of yeah that that the industry of it and also of uh, you know what i love is what I love beyond almost anything else that uh, that games is so good at providing is opportunities to solve a problem by learning a new skill. Right. Uh, and I, I'm not one of these people. And again, this kind of ties back to the the sort of start of, of cut copy in a way that attitude. Um, if 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 I need something for one of my video games, be it like I, I, the last one, I had to write a, a chat server. Uh, like a node socket chat server running on a Heroku instance. Okay. At least I decided that I wanted to do that. And Robert said that was the... Robert Yang said that that was the technology I should use. And I didn't know anything about it. But that moment is what I love. Uh, and sometimes I'll try to do the thing and it turns out I can't do it. And that's that's fine. I'm not, I'm not like overly defeated by that. But yeah. most of the time I can do it at least badly. And so my work is overwhelmingly constructed out of a very broad set of tasks each done more or less badly (laughs) and i think that's that's at least like more satisfying to me than than developing virtuosity in any individual domain okay and maybe i developed some virtuosity by accident in some of these domains or at least a small amount of it but i i i don't I think maybe this is where my process is a little different than than yours, right? Like you're 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 like, let's go deep on some skills and use that as the creative palette. Sure. And well, and I think it comes from coming from a background of being on a large team and right. having one very specific job. Right. Exactly. And you know, I I definitely have full respect for that. It's just about knowledge about how my brain works. Yeah. Uh, which is that you know, there's that funny uh, there's like the Dunning Kruger curve, right? Right. Uh, where you know it's it, it's it's just a fact about about human expertise that you start off thinking you're great, 
And then I'm going to tell the Dunning-Kruger story sure. in a completely different way. <laughs> and then you go down into this trough in the graph where you realize that you're shit. And then it takes quite some time and, and effort uh, before you come back up and you actually are good at it, right? right. Like that's how, the, that's how the graph works. Now, you, there's two ways to look at that, that chart. You can say, well, uh, I guess I have a lot of work to do. I've got to get out of this area of falsely thinking I'm good. I've got to work my way through the period of knowing that I'm bad. And then I've got to, uh, things will be good once I've actually uh, got expertise. But my business partner, when I was making these ads, I think he had a piece of wisdom that I thought of as foolishness at the time, which is we'd be making work. And I would say we had to do something a certain way to get the quality up. Something was not good. And he'd be like, 80-20 rule, 80-20 rule. Of course, for most people, the 80-20 rule is that uh, the last 20% of the effort takes, of, of, the, of the quality of the product takes 80% of the time. Right. Or something to, to that effect. Yeah. For him, the 80-20 rule is do the first 80% and then stop. Because the last, it's not efficient to do the last twenty percent. Because the twenty percent doesn't matter. Well, oh, no, because it's, it's Cause, not cause cost gonna, efficient. Because you're going to spend so much time on the last twenty percent. Right. It's like per, per percentage point. Yeah. It's so much more expensive to do the last twenty percent. Yeah. He's like, it's just crazy to do the last twenty percent. Yeah. And I thought he was such an idiot, and it was so characteristic of his idiot person. Apologies, Dodgy. This is what I thought at the time. Yeah. But I now see great wisdom in that point of view. I yeah. think that he, uh, you can commit to never do the last twenty percent. Yeah. And that's a way of 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 that's like a, a philosophy of life you can live by. Yeah. Uh, that's that's, I think. This is in some ways just a personality difference, whether or not you can do this. Like Chris Hecker, my, uh, my friend, who I respect greatly, can never do this. Like there's, there's no reality where he doesn't do the last 20% of a right. project. Uh, but for me, that's, that's, like, that's my, my jam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fuck that 20%. <laughs> do you feel that's been... Well, I, I don't want to jump forward too far, but do you feel like that's been true of, uh, of, of most everything that you've released? Yeah. Yes. I mean, not sports do, do, friends, because that was with other people. Right. Well, okay. So I will jump forward a little bit, and we're going to come back. Mm. But because it's relevant right now. So my understanding of the curve of, of the work that you released in games is that Quop you released for free, and it got a lot of attention, and then you made a fairly large number of other games following that that got varying amounts of attention and then mm -hmm. you released getting over it with Bennett Foddy which got an enormous amount of attention mm -hmm. and do you feel like having such a large and sustained audience forced you to do more of that 20% than you would have otherwise like making the game more stable and making it be playable with more input devices and making it yeah like those yeah sorts I definitely of I definitely do more now uh, part of it is that as you get um, more experienced in making anything you get more and more sucked in by craftsmanship. That's a little bit of it. And a little bit of it is that building a game for Steam, uh, you're just terrified of the, the customer culture there, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if, if you don't have resolution settings and quality settings and a V-Sync setting and, and a, and a left-handed setting, people are mad at you. And yeah. so, you know, that holds you to a certain... Um, I, I guess, do you, do you feel like 
audience reaction or audience expectations kind of forced you to do more of the 20% after the fact than you would have otherwise? The, the, the reason I'm going to say no okay. is that I, you know, I did feel that pressure and I knew that it was going to change what I was doing to some extent. If you're making a web game, you know, that people will play for free, you know, fuck anyone who doesn't like it, right? You just do whatever. Yeah. You get bored of it and then you put it online and that's done. Which is what I did with Quop. Um, you can't do that if you're charging money and you can't do that for these customers. And I knew that. So, uh, what I thought was, um, I didn't want to get stuck at the tail end of the project, just having to do this fucking shit. <laughs> so I put the like menus and options and, and all that stuff. I did that in the first 80%. And I think that's really important. I think <laughs> yeah. it's really valuable. Like, you know, from, from having worked on middle to larger games yeah. um yeah i think that if you save those things for the last 20 yeah. percent, it's super hard to actually commit to giving them the time that they need you're creating a misery for yourself uh i did i did only because i decided to do this very late in the project i decided to do localization yeah and i so i was stuck doing that right at the end of the project that was bad enough and if i had to be doing other things on top of that yeah uh, I would have lost it. I mean, yeah. basically, I didn't... So I, I did do settings menus. I did do visual... I did care about visual polish. I felt like that was like one of the things I was going to put in the 80. Right. I didn't... I, and I did do debugging to a certain extent, but it's not that important on Steam because you're constantly able to just push out uh, patches and right. iOS as well. Right. Um, I did not do any optimization whatsoever. Um I did not do a huge range of device testing. Right. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that, that I left out, but I also didn't do like parts of the game that might, for many people, go in the, in the 80%. Yeah. You know? um, there's no character select. Right. Right. There's no change, like exchangeable hammers. There's no right. level two. There's no yeah. DLC. Like, yeah, so I... I just strictly cut that away. Yeah. And it's very it's a very light it's very unusual game, I think, in that it it uh it, getting over it is has very few dynamic elements. Right. So that was another thing that that was kinda cut away. Yeah. It's got like a physics orange. Yeah. So <laughs> one physics orange, there's a coffee cup. Right. Yeah. And there's a bucket. And that's that's it. Everything else is just static. Yeah. So it's just pure level design. Well did you feel like you had to go back and do the optimization after the fact, for instance, or you're just like, eh, if it doesn't run that good, sorry. Well, it was more important on mobile. Right. Thankfully, Matt Bach was doing the technical port, so okay. he did, he did some really heavy, fancy lifting for for fixing it up. Cool. Uh, he, uh, he's like me in the sense that he'll do any task once, and I think <laughs> he had never optimized a mobile game before, so he was like, I'm just gonna invent whole new branches of science to be able to do a good job of this. Uh, and then he'll never do that ever again, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he did an amazing job. I could have, I could do that. If my only task was optimizing somebody's game, I, I, I could enjoy it. Yeah. But if I have to like make that part of the process of making my game, it's, yeah, it's just. Okay. So, okay. So grew up in Melbourne. You had parents who were both academics. That's mm -hmm. probably, Kind of why you were studying philosophy, philosophy as your as your degree. No, 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 no. I think that that, that, that inability was... to commit was why I was studying mm. philosophy. What uh, do you mean? Well, 
So this is another thing about my my personality. I think that echoes through my creative work as well. Is that um, when I was growing up, my parents were very big on the idea. One of the things that I heard a lot was, uh, "It's good to keep your options open." Mm. What a weird thing to say to children, right? <laughs> Strange thing. And looking back on it, I try to understand why why were they saying that? And I can only assume, I haven't asked them, I should just ask, but, but I can only assume that if you keep telling a teenager to keep their options open, what you think is they're going to choose something dumb, right? Like they're <laughs> going to try to do something dumb. And they're going to get overly committed to it. Uh, maybe they saw how much time I was spending on the computer and they were like a bit worried he's going to, you know, and then at school, they also told Wait, me... worried he was going to what? Like, I don't know, like, like become a computer person or something. And that's, that's bad for your parents for your academics? Right. Because I, I feel like a lot, of people, a lot of parents are like, oh, computer, that's how you get a job. I you think what they computer. mostly didn't want in the world was for me to ever own or operate a business. Huh. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that's... They, they were kind of hardcore, died-in-the-wall 1960s hippie academics. Okay. And uh, they were so they much viewed more like collectivist, like anti-capitalist. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, the one thing to realize is that the Australian university system is much more heavily state-based. It's much more unionized, and the kind of it's much more leftist generally. And there is a kind of tr- like in the same way that uh, American game developers are sus- sort of uh, tribally suspicious and hostile to sports. <laughs> Uh, Australian academics are, are tribally suspicious of business okay. as, as a, like a right-wing con- construct. Okay. In a way that would never make sense in America. Right. But that was the kind of norm that I was growing up with. So, I, you know, people telling keep, keep your options open. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, I had a guidance counselor at school. You know, they test, they do a ba- battery of tests. And they, they test your aptitude, but they also test your interests. And I guess my interest test came out like equal in every single category because <laughs> he was like yeah you what, what you should definitely do is keep your options open. <laughs> was that scans i mean you're talking about how you like to do a lot of things to yeah a low it does level it does but it doesn't mastery. scan in the way that they thought it scanned right right, right. If, if if you if you're really a person who is just like wanting to have a taste of everything keeping your options open is not the way to do that but so i i enrolled in uh, double degree, five-year double undergraduate degree, double major in uh, uh, physics and in philosophy, being that these were both intellectually interesting subjects that um, seemed different enough from each other that I would be able to keep my options open. <laughs> and I okay. graduated knowing for sure that I didn't want to be in physics, um, but I ground, it out. I ground out my degree. Yeah. Both of them? The double? The double. I did the double. Damn. And at that point, I still knew I had to keep my options open, but uh, (laughs) I knew I couldn't do physics anymore. Yeah. So I did a, like a capstone or like a honors degree in like an additional year in philosophy, Mm. which would qualify me for grad school. Okay. Uh, But I didn't. Uh, you know, as I said, I knew I knew one thing, which is I didn't want to be an academic. It's difficult to be a philosopher if you don't want to be an academic. Right. That's what I'm thinking. So like, I really didn't know other, what I wanted. One of the other things. Yeah, like, I didn't know what I wanted to be. an author, I guess, but you're still probably working at a university. So I graduated. Right? I honestly say I graduated without having really thought about what I wanted to do or be. Okay. Because I was keeping my options open. Yeah. 
Yeah. I thought maybe briefly, I thought, uh, you know, starting to bubble away, I'd like to try making video games, but it was all very hard. And then I thought I'd like to be like a computer, like a CG effects artist. Oh, okay. But I didn't really have any training in that. I was trying to kind of like get together a reel. I was really, really bad at it. Uh, and uh, I had an opportunity at one point to become a research assistant, which is a low paid job yeah. to a philosopher. Okay. And I guess I did a good job of that, and I became a research assistant to another philosopher, and uh, was through that process starting to write philosophy papers, which is a good way to get a scholarship to do a, a PhD. Sure. So I just kind of fell into it uh, by keeping okay. my options open. <laughs> uh, if you spend your life trying to keep your options open, you will wind up getting some opportunities that are just numerically just like on the probabilities unlikely to be perfect for you right sure. you might get interesting experiences which i definitely did yeah uh but my options were open when i joined the band and right. my options were open when i started my tv commercial company and they remained open when i went to to grad school and then later went to become a philosopher in in the states so yeah. um yeah that's kind of how that's that's how that happened. But now mismanagement. Kind of, but, but now you're life. kind of you've kind of chosen some options at this point, right? Right. right. That's good. Well, I mean, I kind of finally it took, came took around. Took you a while, but... it did. It did. <laughs> I finished up my three-year postdoc at Princeton in philosophy, and I had another postdoc uh, at Oxford University. Okay. These are great jobs for feeding into a job as a professor of philosophy. Yeah, I mean, those are very prestigious universities to yeah i mean i will don't go too far with that because postdocs are not massively prestigious anywhere but yes sure of all the places to have a a, a postdoc yeah uh, those, those are great schools in philosophy the top two actually i think over time okay um so my career was 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 going fine and yet i guess i did have a feeling like it would be better to select something yeah and this was about a time when, when I got to Oxford, I'd been there for a little, like six months when Quop blew up. I'd written it while I was at Princeton and then, and then sort of nothing had happened. And then in 2000, Christmas 2010, it started to blow up virally. Yeah. And uh, it was right while that was happening and I was having like um, dinner with an old friend who, with whom I had tried to write games as uh, undergraduates and we kind of failed. And he was like, well, why don't you just start like angling for a, a, a job and I was like it just had not occurred to me I was like oh I could actually select a thing in my life <laughs> I could actually like try to build towards that and yeah. uh, then I could be doing this thing full time which I've I've loved video games my whole life it's never gone away I've never yeah. grown out of it yeah I don't show any signs of growing out of it and I keep making them as well in my spare time like just keep making them and publishing them yeah uh, so maybe I could, maybe I could do that. And, and was that Quop was the... not the first game that you, that you released? No, the first one I released is a flash game called Too Many Ninjas. Okay. Which is... That sounds like a flash game that was made in the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, 2005 or so. There you go. Uh, got featured on Kotaku. Mm. I made it following a tutorial. <laughs> um, it was kind of that period of time. It's There's a game... this tutorial about how to make a reasonable number of ninjas and you just... <laughs> Pushed it all away. It was just about how to throw sprites up on a screen. Yeah, yeah. Move them around. Took me some time to work it out. Um, 
I couldn't figure out how to make... I had a little samurai who was hitting ninjas with a sword. And okay. I couldn't figure out how to make him run around. So I just had him stuck in the center of the screen. <laughs> the ninjas come to you. Yeah, hey. You, ninjas got to encounter the samurai somehow. Right. <laughs> but so, so what made you want to do that in the first place? Uh, like, like, I had always what? wanted to make games. I tried as a, as a child several times writing things in basic. I tried yeah. to do things in ball and see. It just was all too much to yeah. bite off. And so yeah. it was like a lifelong wish. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I was growing up, I did a little bit of doing, like, text adventures in BASIC, and then my main stuff that I did was using, like, the Duke Nukem 3D level editor and, right. like, those kinds of tools that are accessible. You can make stuff for a game you already have. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I even had... I mean, I had messed around with, like, uh, what was that Quake uh, editor? Um, um, Hammer or something like that? No, Hammer's Valve's thing. That's Valve's um, thing. The first Quake level editing, yeah. I definitely messed, I had messed around with Doom level editing. I didn't have enough um, stick to to actually get anything kind of finished in any interesting way. But I, I had been yeah. m- muddling around with no, it. No, that was kind of my, my progression was like I made a big, ornate Duke Nukem 3D campaign thing. And then I was like, ah, oh, now I should make a Quake level. And I like did like a little bit of like subtractive BSP and it like wouldn't portal and I was like this seems hard <laughs> and yeah. I'm like 14 years old all right, right. never mind I'm not doing this right. I mean, but that's not every 14 year old right yep. like, there's a lot who, who go on to just figure it out and, and yeah. continue well and I came back to it when I was in college I was like oh I've done that before I should right. try making something for some other game but yeah I know so, the feeling <laughs> so one of the things that has happened in my life is that as I've gotten older I've gotten better at not giving up when I'm frustrated sure and that's been continual, like a palpably kind of steady and continual process. And so I reached a point where I think that I could... Are talking about your life or are you talking about getting over it with better body? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, it, is, it is definitely something that I know about my life. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that happened was, uh, this is, it's embarrassing to tell the story in this way, but I'm going to do it anyhow. I was a daily reader of a Penny Arcade comic. Oh, it's so bad to say now. Keep going, buddy. And, uh, no, that's the bad part of it. Okay. <laughs> um, so I guess Jerry from Penny Arcade, uh, had his column, his daily column, mm-hmm. uh, that I read and it was in 2005 or so. He was like, there's this amazing website, uh, that covers indie games, which I'd not really heard about, but yeah. I knew I kind of interested in, in kind of shareware and freeware games. I yeah. had been playing those the whole time. Yeah. And, uh, so I went to, to TickSource.com. Mm, okay. Which has a prominent, uh, link to the forum. Still has it there. It hasn't changed all that much, actually. <laughs> um, and I went to the forums and I look and there's, like, people sharing progress on their games. Now, yeah. the nice thing about TickSource then and now is that it's a mixture of people who actually have some chops who are doing, like, you know, Lucas Pope is still on there. Right, right. And people who have never finished anything, who, right. who are just making a good-looking sprite and leaving it at that. Yeah. And uh, it's very unthreatening, that feeling. Yeah. And so getting encouragement from people when all you've done is mock up a, a level layout and uh, getting feedback on the very first kind of broken build that you threw up on, on a website... I can't remember why I had a website, but I you know had to, had some web space that I yeah. could put things on. I mean, they probably give you that for free if you're at a college or whatever. 
Uh, no, I, I was paying for it. Okay. I can't remember why, but I had. I know I had. Everybody some... was paying for web space in 2005. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I thought I was going to have a blog or something yeah. like that. Uh, and so yeah, could throw up a little flash thing, get some feedback, and that was really transformative. And I think it yeah. was that community support that suddenly made it made possible what was previously just impossible for that's me. cool I, I didn't actually know that you had a connection to tick source when you were starting out oh yeah OG tick source man. yeah well that's... I mean because I'm gonna talk to um, Derek Yu later this week and I you know I know of his work as really you know coming out of tick source right. and other people but I didn't know that that your early games were yeah from I, that I would credit all of that to, to all of my uh, inroads there my ability to get started I would credit substantially to, to Derek organizing that community huh that's cool. uh, and to the people who were on there who were supporting each other and encouraging each other and and I think shaping each other's taste yeah uh, it was very alive for a few years yeah yeah and you know my I put my first build of quap on there in fact I think the title is suggested by one of the other people and they're, <laughs> they're like what's the title of this I'd like a hey, I don't know I had some really bad title in mind right. and they're like you should just call it quap and, yeah uh, you know I that it was it's sort of weird to think about, I mean, forums are so much not really a part of our digital lives now. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, yeah. In a lot of ways. They've but, been eclipsed by things like, you know, private Discord servers or stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And, the, you know, it's the publicness of forums that is their greatest strength, but it also dooms them to decay and to an ultimate sort of dissolution of community. I, I, Source is not defunct. No. Uh, but it isn't, it isn't the kind of, um, like... There is a whole wave, a whole scene of independent game developers, not all of the independent game developers, but a wedge of them that come out of that forum yeah. who are still active now for right. the most part right. and uh, who, who have all made things that at least those of us within that scene uh, recognize and remember. Right. And I, th I think of that as well, being like also um, Edmund McMillan was involved in Take Source with his early stuff? Right? Uh, there's, uh, yeah, Edmund. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, uh, who, who else was there? I'm going to say Alexander Bruce from Antichamber. There's Dan Tabar from uh, 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 Cortex Command mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Increpare, Stephen Lavelle was there. Yeah. Terry Kavanaugh was there. Um, oh, right, for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. like... I mean, it's a, it, it, I, probably what you're feeling is that it's effectively a generational thing. I mean, there's so many people that start out when they're in your teens to early to mid-20s that when you're the age to be trying to get in, and that's the most prominent place to get attracted to, a bunch of people end up there, and then they kind of age out, and now yeah. there's something else that is the more attractive place for people who are just starting out to go than Yeah, I mean, there, there are these weird seniority effects, right? Yeah. I mean, suddenly you're like, who are all these newbies? Yeah. And I want to be in the situation where I'm the newbie, right. and I'm being supported by these, uh, by these uh, elders of the <laughs> scene, and it's hard to realize, and I think actually as, as a, collectively as a scene, I think a criticism I would make of all of us, and not not least me, is that we kind of failed to make that transition in a lot of cases to where, like, why isn't this scene supporting me now? A lot of the time, that's an indication it's your job to support other people. Right, now. yeah. I, I think we were slow to recognize that. Well, I think there can also be some aspect of there being a, a less attractive factor to when there are established people there right like right. when when something like tig source starts out there are no elders because right. everybody's 
right jumping and then, in. and then it becomes a there's a clique or a, or a hierarchy or yeah, there whatever is a hierarchy, yeah. um so you know that you kind of can't get that clean slate back at some point right. which is uh, but and maybe yeah. that's fine maybe maybe these things run their course and then they people move elsewhere maybe yeah. they come back eventually but i mean they don't stop happening they just happen somewhere else you know? or to somebody else sure yeah i think that's one of the things that i've always argued against with the whole um indiepocalypse uh narrative yeah is I don't think this is true across the board because we can't argue with the numbers. There is a there has been a massive influx of developers and a massive increase in the number of games that come out. Nobody can deny that. Yeah. But I think one of the things that has happened is that disproportionately the indie apocalypse has affected people within this particular scene. And that uh, people who have who've had commercial successes over the past three or four years have been have come from outside of the scene and can seem invisible uh, to people uh, within that scene. And the flip side of that is uh, people were not aware of failures that were happening outside of the scene right. uh, until you start to see them happening to people you're connected to. Right. Sure. And yeah, you know, there are a lot of we could come up with a lot of hypotheses for why that shift has 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 happened. Um, simplest explanation has got to be that as as a group we started to have more ambition and take more risks. Sure. And uh, you know, there's also just weird uh, visibility effects that come from survivorship bias because the people who went and got jobs somewhere else or left the game industry altogether. Um, are invisible as well. We don't remember them. Right. Well, I think there's also a, a, a natural desire for novelty and people who aren't already, who haven't already displayed their novel thing right. are more likely for people to be like, well, that's new. Right. You know, that's cool. I'm excited about that. Right. And that's a power we have as a group, right? Yeah. It's a power we have as a group to be like, we've got 500 people connected to each other and you haven't seen any of their stuff. And... You know, after you've shown 200 of, of those games, people start to be, yeah, yeah, we've heard from you guys. Yeah, and then yeah. the people that are having success now are the people that, you know, we don't know yet. And that's, you know, I mean, that's a part of the success is right, it's right, a new right. idea. You know, like, and, and sometimes you look into those things and you're like, oh, they did come from somewhere. I just didn't know about the place they came from. Right. Like, when I... When when I found out about Undertale, mm. I was like, "Oh, that's a okay, you know." It's out of nowhere, yeah. Well, and it, but it's like, okay, it's an Earthbound thing. I get yeah. that, but I, yeah, I guess it just came out of nowhere. And then like, after, you know, long after, because I'm an, an old, yeah, I, I I was informed that it's like, oh no, he was like the guy that did the music for Homestuck. And yeah. It's like, oh well, it has a massive following right. of people that are right. younger than me that I have no exposure to. Right. But it didn't come from nowhere. It just came from a place that I can't see because I'm not. Exactly. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I always try to, this is almost impossible to do, but I always try to argue for maybe just uh, trying to realize the limits of your perspective yeah. when you're when you're seeing these things. For sure. But anyway, yeah, to, but to, to your question, I mean, I, I, I think that it was that community that I would have to say made a kind of a huge shift in my life uh, possible. And it's not as though I didn't know that I wanted to make games. I, I knew that. I just didn't feel capable. Right. Well, and there's something I think is really powerful about just seeing that other people are trying to do the same thing you exactly. are. Exactly. Even yeah. like even if they're just the fact that I'm like, oh, I'm not the only one who's trying to make this work. Okay, right. so that means there's not that bad an idea to try. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. some version of that that I think is is a powerful part of community. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I remember these things very sort of like hazily, but there, there are kind of kind of moments that seem important to me. One of them, I was, I posted a, a mock-up for this first game that I published, the Too Many Ninjas, which, you know, was in a time when I think people were starting to experiment with, uh, can we take pixel art styles, retro styles, and mess with the with the constraints of that like just let's just let's just sort of modernize it in some ways or let's let's throw away the constraints what would we do with with pixel art sounds so uh cliche now but um but if we weren't constrained by kind of technical things and i was in a thread where i posted this mock-up and i was in a like uh and and, I, and phil fish was posting like mock-ups for fez yeah which is also trying to do we were talking about um about how that was sort of a shared sort of aesthetic goal. Yeah. And I guess that would have been like a good, what, like seven years before Fez came out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but yeah, it's, it's those moments where you sort of feel like you've found your tribe and you are in the same boat with people in terms of expertise and, and ambition and, and uh, taste that I think really can kind of lock in a, course for your life but yeah. this was still um this was still good what i'm gonna say eight years before i was full-time making games okay so i didn't know time. that i didn't know that at any point you were actually full-time making games i always thought that you were like working at nyu or elsewhere oh, while well, I say, let, yeah, I, I, that's correct i okay. should i okay. should correct myself full-time involved in games okay all right yeah, at NYU, like, my job is sort of defined as I, half my time is making games and half my time is teaching people to make games. Right. So it's all, all games all the right, time. Right, right, okay. okay. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you were part of the, the Take Source community and, and you released uh, too, many, too Many Ninjas, which, um, by the way, if I can give you a piece of criticism for that game, yeah. you're just too damn many ninjas. <laughs> Uh, 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 and well, that was the headline that wrote itself, right? Yeah. That's what all the, the journalists. Yeah. Um, and 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 Quop and Quop is a game um, that that was that was certainly the game of yours that I became familiar with first, and yep. um, it was a game that uh, if you're listening to this, you are uh, listening to something that comes from the Idle Thumbs Network. Um, so Chris Remo and I think Nick Brecken from the Idle Thumbs podcast got obsessed with crossing the finish line in Quop, mm-hmm. and you know they're very masochistic about it, and they did it, and it was it was you know a big day for them. Uh, but I kind of you know I think I discovered it because they had you know discovered it and were um, I think they were streaming even though it was quite early for streaming. But um, regardless, yeah, I kind of, I, I came across it through that. Um, and that felt like something that, that, that had a big moment, mm. like you were saying. Mm. Um, that it, it was sort of a breakthrough game. It was one of those games of that time that just felt kind of emblematic of weird, difficult, but impossible to put down, like, Flash games mm-hmm. that were happening. Um, so... Can can you uh, explain the premise of Quop? I could do it, but I want to hear how you put it. Really? Yeah. Uh, the premise of Quop is uh, you're tasked with you're you're an Olympic athlete who's who's about to participate, I suppose, in a race or at least run from one end of the track to the other. I mean, it's a hundred meter race, right? It's a hundred meter. Well, there's yeah, but there's nobody racing against him. Right, right. He's more like he's training. Okay, okay. Um, 
Perhaps after a terrible accident. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Not to interrupt. Yeah, you spoil it. Um, but he he won't respond to just being told to go to the right. You have to do the work of his uh, his running locomotion action. Uh, so you're using key keys to, to activate his muscles uh, and and produce a sort of semblance of, of, of running. Right. So it's a it's a two D physics based game where yeah. the Q W O and P keys basically contract each the, one yeah each the one thigh and calf muscles of this runner right? each one corresponds to a pair of joints and counter rotates them so you can kind of create a or or is that right it's it's um no it's not right okay so that's just how you actually are, are playing the game so. Yeah, so, yeah, it's O and P are his left and right knee joints, his calves nominally, and, and Q and W is thigh joints, uh, his thigh muscles or hip joints. Right. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're just, you're, you're rotating them. Yeah, you're trying to get into this rhythm of basically, like, lifting his left knee and then extending his left foot so it'll hit the ground and then lifting his right knee and you're doing right. this very, very difficult very kind of surreal version of consciously causing his legs to run in a way that actually human beings, you know, you don't think about it, but you have to be like, how do I press these buttons to make this guy's legs move, right? right? And so then generally you get about 0.1 meters and your head hits the ground and it's game over and you have to try again. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I say it's counter-rotating because it's... Um... There's there's two different directions and four joints, which would be eight keys. So yeah. I, I put them in in pairs. So like, uh, if I straighten my left leg, then I'm I'm unstraightening my my right leg, for example. That's oh, that's okay. how it's sort of I see. that's the constraint which uh, which allows you to have only four keys. I see. Okay. So one is extend and one right. is, exactly. is contract. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so why did you make that? Why? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I started out with a cricket game. That's okay. Well, I don't have to ask why you made that because you're Australian. I love cricket. <laughs> never has. There's never been a good cricket game. At least that was true at the time. I I'm, I looked at you for a second flat because I thought you were just talking about the game of no. cricket. <laughs> I like, was like, there's never been a good cricket match. I would never. Frankly... <laughs> I would never say that about the second most popular game in the world. I believe it. Uh, cricket is a wonderful game. Yeah. But uh, you know there had never been a good. Video game adaptation. It's like baseball. It's like these two games that, that don't really lend themselves very well to, yeah. to video game adaptations. Yeah. And part of it with cricket is that the context for a video game is is totally wrong for cricket. Cricket is about trying to concentrate for five days with no break, eight hours a day. It is. Yeah. And wait, tell me more about cricket. Well, when you're batting, you're you're there. For as long as it takes. Sometimes one one batsman's out there at the crease for two or three days, and he, he just has to face hundreds and hundreds of, of pitches of deliveries. Why? That's the game. What do you mean it's the game? Because because he's got a big wide bat. Yeah. The basic and because he he there's no um in ba in baseball you have to run if you hit the ball in play. Right. In cricket you do not have to run. Okay. You just have to defend your wicket. Okay. And, and it's not that difficult of a task to do once. 
but to do it 500 times is, is a difficult task. So that's the actual task in cricket. But we would never play a video game that took that amount of endurance. Right. As most people wouldn't. So right. it's like a different context. So it makes it very difficult. So you have to kind of read. I had an idea of how I could redesign the game, capturing some of what I liked about cricket. Yeah. But not... Uh, Wait, so one batter... I'm sorry. I don't know anything <laughs> about cricket except that the bat is wide. So one batter is there. They they it's two bat bat batsmen. Okay, two batsmen. But they and they are at opposite ends. And they every time you you hit it, you try to run to to the facing end. Okay. So they cross. So you have two batsmen who are are they are they hitting the the balls at the same time like at no. each other? No, no, no. Okay, only, only one at a time. Okay, and then the other the one on the opposite side is trying to defend their wicket. Yeah, which is basically the. This fact will be the goal for the other ball. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Right. And so and so, what you're saying is, it can take that many days because it can take that many days for either of them to get it through the wicket once, uh, or for one of them to get it. Through no, there's the... ten people. There's a okay. there's ten bat. There's ten wickets on each side. There's eleven oh. people on each side. Oh, okay. So, uh, to to win the game of cricket, yeah, I have to get uh, ten players out twice. Okay. Each okay. each each time is an in innings. And if we can do that within five days, then we win. Okay. If we run out of time, then it's a draw, which is very, very common. Out of third, of, third of the game said draws. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So it's a, so it is so it's the second most popular game in the world after yeah. after soccer or football. Yeah. As, Association as football. Why do people have ties so much? Good luck. No, a draw is not the same as a tie. You can also have a tie in cricket. That's very rare. Oh come on. Yeah, that's when you are all you get all of the people out. Yeah. their innings is over and the scores are tied. Okay, okay, that is very unusual. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, why do people like draws? Yeah, this is the biggest cultural difference between American and European game designers. Um, I remember I had a conversation a couple of years ago at GDC with uh, some of the folks from Riot. Mm-hmm. And with Chris Hecker, who was trying to design the matchmaking system for Spy Party. Yeah. He was talking to them about how they do matchmaking. Because obviously, League of Legends is a very, very successful matchmaking service. Yeah. It doesn't work uh, in ways that you might assume if you just went to d- design it yourself. Really? But uh, Chris was like, you know, I have to try to... Like, the problem is that you've got to play as Spy and then play as the Sniper. And that's two rounds format. And, you know, the, the real difficulty is, um, you know, trying to avoid situations that are like, I, I, I don't, I, what was it? Like letting people choose which side that they would play and trying to rank piece. Like the real difficulty is, uh, I can't, um, it's apples and oranges. Your ranking in spy might be really good and your ranking in sniper might be really bad. And I said, well, why don't you just make it that? A match is one round of spy and one round of sniper on both sides, which is swap. Yeah. And well, he's like, well, then you could have a draw. I'm like, fine, let's have draws. <laughs> and Chris and the two guys from Riot immediately turn around in, in unison, say, draws are boring. <laughs> just, it's just an axiom of American game design. Because your sports don't allow draws. Sure. And also because of, like you know, rugged libertarianism and, and manifest destiny and, <laughs> and capitalism and entrepreneurialism and, and empire and all of those things. Can you just do best two out of three? No, because then you somebody has to be spied twice and somebody, or somebody has to be sniper twice. Yeah. It's not, not fair. Well, I guess I meant best 
four out of six. Stop trying to no, solve this problem. No, it's three out of six. A draw, is, screwed. A draw is just fine. Yeah, okay. Okay. I mean, you're probably right. I mean, a draw... According to the two most popular sports in the world. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, it's like... I mean, I think you're probably right. I'm um, obviously right. I mean, the world says you are. Yes. The world is on Bennett Foddy's side, which is the name of your next game. <laughs> After getting over it with Bennett Foddy. <laughs> it's maddening to me how, how sure American designers are that, that draws are bad. I mean, I'm not. I mean, but I also make games where nobody wins. You were shocked when you heard that cricket often ends in a draw. I was shocked when I heard that cricket takes five days. <laughs> <laughs> five days to end in a draw? That is a lot. At least a soccer game takes like three hours. It's great. Here's okay. why. It's competitive, right? Sports people, serious sports people, like, like professionals, don't want to draw. And that means it's not boring that there is a threat of a draw. And yes, everybody's a little bit disappointed when there's a draw, unless it's like some weird thing at the end of a league and makes a difference to who comes out top of a table. But generally, everyone's disappointed. And that's the greatest. I mean, we accept that in competitive sports, there's always one side is disappointed. So we're not against disappointment across the also, board. Also, I feel like that's an extremely Bennett Foddy quote. Everyone's disappointed, and that's just the greatest. <laughs> if you said to me, Mike, I'm designing this game where it's always a draw. Right. Competitive game. Yeah. It's always a draw. I would be like, fuck that. But if it was a draw nine times out of ten, right. that sounds super exciting to me. Well, what what you... if we get a result? What, yeah. if it's, what if it's 999 times out well, of a thousand? I mean, what, what do you think about um, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds? Because I think so, one of my arguments about that game is that though there is no way for there to be a draw, yeah. that it is very interesting that the value proposition is you as an individual will almost never win. Right. And ever winning any round ever is Super extremely yeah. stressful and exciting. People are so excited. Yeah. I mean, for most people, I guess if you're like pro level, you mostly win or whatever. But, you know, for like 99% of players, 99% of the time, more than 99% of the time, you are not going to win, and it's exciting to even have the chance to get close most of the time. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. It's been in the, in the public eye for, what, like a year? Yeah. And, you know, otherwise intelligent designer friends of ours, good friends of ours who we love and respect, still post screenshots of their chicken dinner on, on Twitter because they're yeah. that excited. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've done it maybe like five or six times, and I've played hundreds of hours of the game, and it's just thing. Yeah. yeah, it's a big moment for yeah. for you yeah. when you win that game. But um... <laughs> wait, what did that mean? <laughs> you hate when people post their chicken? Yeah, they don't do it that often. Constantly, just constantly. Yeah, you 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 follow better PUBG players than I do. I guess so. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, yes, I think that... that um, In my defense, I only posted the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the, that a game is very well designed for making you feel like something is at stake, uh, that it will matter if you win, that it's exciting if you win. Like the, and the, this feeling of being crushed by the, by the blue wall... Um, Please, this is the blue hole. Blue, the blue hole, yeah. You're in. Are you in the blue? Yeah, I don't know. They, uh, the blue hole's coming. <laughs> it's constricting. That feeling of, of, of constriction. It's it's very effect, effective. It yeah. really yeah. it really makes you. That's what you want when you're designing a competitive game. You want yeah. people to feel ex like it's exciting if somebody wins. Yeah, and the pressure of the tension building. Yeah, yeah it's a it's good. Yeah, 
my only misgivings about Fortnite, uh, sorry, not Fortnite, uh, PUBG, yeah. is that I feel like it... I mean, they're both that, right? I feel like PUBG, it encourages a kind of a weirdly nihilistic style of play that is also incidentally conducive to sort of slightly toxic social interactions between teammates. I like it much more as a solo game. Yeah. But even wait, in a solo wait, wait, game... Explain what you're talking about, though, because I don't know what phenomenon you're describing. I'm sure this doesn't describe... I haven't played PUBG with you, so uh, I'm sure you are a delight, but uh, maybe not. I, I mean, I only play with friends, and we're very supportive of one. Yeah, I only play with friends. And we almost always lose. We won a bunch of times. Um, you parachute in... And we are in, instantly in a kind of a zero-sum thing where we're trying to steal from each other. Mm. Rummaging through these buildings, getting equipment, and sets up really weird things where somebody's like, I didn't get any healing. Did anybody else get any healing? It's like, yeah, I've got some, but I need it. And it's like, okay, well, okay. So sharing is not like part of this to begin with. Uh, you're not really incentivized to share. It creates these situations that are kind of interesting and, and, and highly um, emotional where your friend goes down just slightly inside the blue and you could rescue them, but probably at great risk to yourself. And there's like a norm, and I think, in that game where you leave your friends behind if they're uh, like, so leaving behind the wounded animal. If the, if, the the pack, li if the likelihood is high that they won't make it, yeah. No, if yeah. the likelihood is there that they won't make it. Sure. Uh, maybe I'm playing with jerks. It's almost certainly true. Uh, but, but. Um, but these jokes yeah, I mean, are much, much nicer in other games, I will say. Okay. So uh, I feel like it brings out uh, a kind of weird behaviors, even when you're playing by yourself. I mean, it is a, it is a distinctly grim and nihilistic game. It's, yeah. it, it is the game of the year 2017. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, to, to your point, I think that if anything, the behavior it encourages is on theme. That right. doesn't make it a more right, pleasant what... experience for... You. The loop is you, you spend the first five minutes of the game building up an investment. And you spend the next portion of the game trying to ruin everybody else's investment. That's, that's your job. Yeah. Uh, or a, you can a, avoid and everybody. And a benefit from it or by, you can, yeah. by taking what they have gained. Yeah, Yeah, and the, the game is, is set up in such a way you can't avoid that. You can wait till the end of the, the round and... Uh, then you're just trying to take away a bigger investment from a smaller number of players. Right. Or you can kind of go in guns blazing and try to take their investment. Yeah. Um, by investment, I'm talking about the time and effort they're put into getting their loot, right? You're trying to take that away and give it to yourself, right. which is very, very unusual. For, well, and for if you haven't done that by the end of the game, you're putting yourself at a significant disadvantage right. versus other people who have been getting all the level three gear and all the silencers. Right, right, and right. All right. That, yeah. I mean, I, if, I, if we play uh, Rainbow Six Siege or Counter-Strike or any of those games... I can't take away your effort from you. Right. right. Or That's not what I'm doing. Yeah. And I think in PUBG, that's where a lot of the uh, intensity comes from, a lot of the excitement, a lot of the fear, right. a lot of the best elements of it. But I think it's almost, it's like, for me, too strong of a flavor, and I, I don't... Well, how do you feel that. about that in comparison to one of your favorite game series, Dark Souls? Do you feel like... Because there can be a lot of ruining people's yeah. run. You're encouraged to. And and do you think do you think that has a similar like sort of like distasteful effect to the end result? 
I think it does personally. I, I like to. But I know I love those moments in Dark Souls. And yeah. it's, it's it's really interesting. And why question. is that? Yeah. Why? Why? I mean, is the that? only reason you invade is because you want somebody to be halfway to the boss and for you to get to kill them. I mean, I think that it's important in Dark Souls that you can opt out of that situation, that of that tension, and at and in fact, it's 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 opt in. It's not opt out, right? Can you? Because if I don't have humanity, I I can't get fucked with for the most part. But it. But there's a mechanical advantage to having humanity in, especially yes, the first Yes, there is an advantage. Souls. So you're, 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 I'm, I'm tempting you. I'm, I'm mm. holding a carrot. I'm like, Steve, uh, I'll give you some benefits. I'll even let you, like, summon help. Right. But you have to put something on the line here. And if you're right. feeling like uh, that's not the kind of emotional place you're in, you don't have to do that. You can play the game as a ghost. Fair. And I think... Most people play most of that game as a ghost. I'm just because it's hard yeah, not right. to become one. Right, right, yeah. right. Exactly, exactly. So, um, I think that makes maybe all the difference. Mm. It's maybe the first game you play of PUBG is great and it doesn't have any problems and is not is not like emotionally problematic at all. Yeah. But it's when you play a hundred rounds in a row, as as many of us have done, that I think that it kind of grinds you down and it's. Uh, now, this is all not to say that it, this, that it was a mistake in design or that uh, that they shouldn't have done it that way. But that's why I'm not continually yeah. playing it. That's, yeah. that's yeah, why yeah. it's kind of over for me. Yeah. Uh, well, I think there's a lot of people that have gotten there with that game of just sort of being like, okay, I think this isn't like the space that I want to be in any longer. Right. But... Now, do people what, like what game isn't that true of? Like when people quit WoW, it's for the same kinds of feelings. Well, like, I mean, not, not the not the same exact ones, but the same sort of like I think that I understand what my relationship to this is, and maybe I don't need this anymore. And people do that with getting over it as well. And I'm completely yeah, at fast. peace with that. I try to I try to make it clear. I think in the in the in the commentary that I want you to walk away at that point. I want to push you to that point, and then and then for you to say that's enough. Yeah. That's the kind of the the outcome that I want and like. Yeah. I think maybe there is implicit in a in a competitive multiplayer game that you they want you to keep playing, especially as you're often playing in a squad with friends. Right. And doesn't seem valid with friends to be like this is starting to piss me off too much. I I've got to walk away from this, right? right? You're kind of leaving your friends high and dry. I think uh, there's so so just to speak of PUBG, I think there's something that is interesting and surprising that there isn't a mode in the game. So that so Sorry, this is not supposed to be the PUBG podcast, but I think this is interesting design space for us to be, yes. for you know, Bennett Foddy to be talking about. Mm -hmm. So I, I assume you've seen the movie that it's more or less based on mm -hmm. Battle Royale. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that would be incredibly on, on theme with what you're talking about is if there was no team winning mode, if only one person could ever win, because that was part of the premise of the original film, was that even if people team up, they can't survive unless there's only one person left. So right. if you get to be the last two people, what are you going to do now? Yeah. And I'm surprised that that is not uh, an official mode in that game because it would it would go even further in reinforcing what you're talking about. Yeah, like, it would be you're, even you're watching your back the entire time. Yeah. You're like, at the beginning, is my friend going to try to kill me so that they can take all the loot and run solo? Or are they going to wait till we're at the very end? Or are they just going to not cover me when I'm running into that firefight? Because yeah. they think they'll be fine if I die now? You know, and that's, I mean, even as it, it, it would is. make it darker and more nihilistic and more stressful and end more friendships. But it would even speak, I think, more to what the game actually is talking about. I think it's amazing how much people moralize those moments in, in, in PUBG. It's a little bit like the complaint people make about Monopoly, right? It's like, puts the whole idea of a magic circle of games. It's kind of circle, we're playing a game, like everything's fair game. 
is definitely not true. And in some ways, behavior can be moral, like moralized against much more intensely in a game than it is in, in reality. If you're playing competitive shooters, but particularly PUBG, and I think for all these reasons we're discussing, and you make a mistake. Uh, I once was playing with um, Kevin Kansian, and I landed too far away from where they were landing. And he was so furious with me. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I was like, uh, I was trying to get too clever with my parachute thing. I landed in the wrong zone. And he was just like, he was just so angry as if I'd committed the kind of worst moral crime. Yeah. Because being far away from everybody else creates like uh, risk. You're not able to defend each other and it's not optimal. Um, you know, in a way that's, it's, it's, it's that wouldn't exist in real life. If we were really parachuting down into a village and I fucked up and landed far away, you'd be like, oh, that guy's an idiot. But, you know, he couldn't uh, help yeah, it. Like, he made how, a mistake. How right? are we going to deal with it? Or right, even, right. even if he totally fucked up because he's a jackass, like, right, it's right. a much different decision to be like, well, fuck him then. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, it's just like, that's simultaneously one of the most interesting things about these games, but it's also like, it's, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's, and it, it's not mediated by the same kind of uh, pacing dynamics and consent dynamics that are there in, in Dark Souls and hopefully, I guess, in, in, uh, in getting over it as well. Yeah. So let's talk, about, let's talk about getting over it with Men at Fadi. Yeah. Because I know I'm kind of skipping a lot of stuff, but I, okay. but I think that we're kind of getting there. Anyway, when did you start working at NYU? Uh, I guess 2013. Okay. Um, yeah, because I know that um, if you, if you, dear listener, have listened to the uh, interview that I did with Nina Freeman at, at Fulbright, um, we talked about her being in your prototyping class right. um, at NYU. You're, you are a professor specifically within the, um, the, the games program mm -hmm. there, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and you do a lot. It sounds like a lot of your coursework is kind of about what you're talking about, like making things rapidly to a, you know, not to a high level of polish, but to a high level of kind of investigation of an idea in, right. in a short period of time to kind of, I think, help students find what they're actually interested in talking about? Yeah, I do three things. I teach the introductory class, which is, uh, which is exactly like that, because it has to be, because it's like a big deal to be able to even get something started as a beginner. I teach a prototype class where you make a game every week, so it's like explicitly about that. Right. And I teach the master's students their uh, graduating thesis class, which is a little bit different, but actually is related because uh, I've, you don't have time to drive things through to a high level of polish and completion. It is absolutely the embodiment of, of uh, my friend's 80-20 rule. <laughs> and it's yeah. about me stopping them from doing the, the last 20. Yeah. Um, and But during that time, you've also been developing and releasing games like throughout that that yep. period right yes we i did I was, sports friends was uh, slightly underway i think when i arrived at nyu okay we did a lot of development of sports friends at nyu in my office interesting um and then after that uh i guess some smaller projects a uh, little bit of after like i feel really bad claiming any degree of burnout after a project of the size of sports friends relatively small especially my part in it um, compared to what all my friends are, like or yourself are, are uh, doing much more multi-year ambitious projects 
But, you know, there was a lot of wrangling in Sports Friends. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we did have to do console sort cert on two platforms at once. Yeah. And, um, it was, it was uh, you know, it was a lot. So, so a little bit of burnout. But then sort of prototyping. I did the multi-bowl, which is the... Um, hacked emulator project I did right. with A.P. Thompson, which is like uh, 300 historic multiplayer video games all kind of wrapped into one. And it's like you get dropped into one randomly and you have to, what, try to not fail? Yeah, it drops, you, it drops you into a kind of an exciting competitive moment in a multiplayer, into, in a two-player game, and gives you a, a, a goal. Like, okay. uh, it's not always score a point. Sometimes it's like damage the other player, kill the other player. It might be, it might be like, uh, in the case of Rampart, it's uh, don't touch the ground. <laughs> like, so there are some kind of interesting constraints like yeah. that. And it's enough games that you can't possibly memorize how to play them all. Right. Um, but yeah, so that... that you made speed chess? I made, I yeah, better body speed chess. I think that might have been before Sports Friends. Okay. Uh, I don't think so. That doesn't maybe sound right the, to me. Maybe during. I'm yeah, going to say yeah. during. Yeah, yeah. Um... So, so you made a lot of of these smaller games. Like, aside from Sports Friends, none of them were commercial games, right? Yeah, well, I think a, what what happened was uh, from about 2009 forward, I got super involved in making games for these parties and events that were really starting to kind of happen around the world. So yeah. Wild Rumpus and London Baby Castles, of course. Uh, I guess starting with showing co-op at Baby Castles in that dungeon in, in Queens when they were there. Yeah. Um, that was like a really big part of my life was designing those games and designing even Flash games like uh, the original Flash version of Pole Riders is designed for a Baby Castle show. I saw it at uh, whatever that party, the Wild Rumpus party here at, at GDC. Right, and that was just out. sort of after we had debuted, and that's where I met uh, Doug Wilson because uh, he was sort of showing Joust at that at that stage, and we ran a show together at, at Baby Castles where uh, we showed Quop and Pole Riders and also his collaboration with me on... Uh, so I had my rock climbing game, GURP. There's a version that you play on four DDR dance oh, mats okay. with your body. It's like Twister, <laughs> uh, which is a collaboration. Uh, we went on, we made, a, we made a, get, a Get On Top, which is a flash game of mine, but it was originally a game that we designed for to be actuated by a trampoline. Okay. Two, two giant trampolines. <laughs> you're trying to bounce at the right time to make the guy jump. Uh, so it was really sort of super into this for a while, and yeah. uh, touring around on that and bringing that stuff to GDC. Uh, the the tramp, I think the the trampoline game, no Mega Gurp was in the experimental gameplay workshop. I can't remember. Oh, okay. I think we brought also the trampoline game to the experimental gameplay workshop. Uh, Speed Chess, Bennett Foddy's Speed Chess. I started putting my name in. Right. Sixteen <laughs> uh, player real time chess that was uh, also in experimental gameplay. Um, have I done experimental gameplay four times? That doesn't sound right. Um, but yeah, bringing them to GDC, taking them to parties. Uh, well, what was the motivation behind that? I mean, these were these. It did, felt like did, a moment. Did, I mean, did, it, did, it, did it help pay your bills at all, or was no. it was it just to be involved with with this, with did, this moment? Yeah, did, it with was the not event. paying yeah. for anything. Yeah. It was that I already had one way or another money to, to like travel funds to to go to uh, that time when I came out for for two thousand. 12, I'm going to say for the first time at GDC, I had uh, GURP was in the IGF, in right. the Nuovo category. And I'd never been to GDC, but uh, we did Mega GURP in the experimental gameplay, and I had a lecture on QWOP. And 
you know, I, I set up a bunch of talks around the country of philosophy stuff so that I could get an airfare out here. And yeah. Okay. So it was sort of paying for it that way. And just it just felt like there was a moment yeah. going on with yeah, those yeah. things. And I really wanted to kind of drive that forward and be part of it. And because Doug and I and Ramiro and Noah were showing games around the same time, we uh, actually Ricky Haggett from, um, from Honey Slug, I think, was the first one to suggest that we make a compendium. Uh, Wait, which is what became Sports Friends. What became Sports yeah. Friends. So yeah. It took some time to get it together. And yeah. all of those games needed a rewrite to be able to get them on console. Right. They yeah. were all written in different frameworks like Game Maker and uh, Flash and, and XNA and Unity. So we, you're getting everything into C++ was yeah. kind of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And it took like way longer than we thought it would as well because right. of that, right? Yeah. Just making menus, I think, was like more than half of the development time. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I had some burnout after that, but yeah, I still still was making these these uh, multiplayer games, yeah. and you know I, I probably will continue to do that forever. Yeah. Um, and multi ball is just the the most recent one of those. Yeah. Um, but then after that, uh, some time passed. I had some work on a project that's still not out, um, and then I got offered this commission by Humble. Uh, so they they were like we want we're we're commissioning small indie games right. to go in our monthly bundle as like spice so that there will be some original content right. and we want yeah. it to be a little bit weird it doesn't have to be that finished you get to keep the IP uh, we'll pay you an amount of money and that yeah. that seemed like a great deal it's like well I'm not doing anything else right now yeah like do you want me to pitch you something and John Paulson very very kindly said no we trust you just uh, just decide what you want we'll you know we'll give you half the money now <laughs> but I was locked into doing it at that point yeah and uh, well, I was like well uh, I know that your audience is not my typical audience I guess yeah uh, can you describe them to me and it's like well yeah sure they it's a it's a PC gamer by themselves probably doesn't have a controller. Which is a, a huh. huge challenge for me because yeah. all my games are either controllers or multiplayer games, uh, overwhelmingly, and and so I was like, well, I've got to I've got to try something. Um, but but some of the games that I think of as being kind of emblematic of what you do, like Quop and Gurp, I mean, they're they're named after being controlled by a keyboard. Yeah, that's true. But I didn't want to do it. And a they are game. single player games. Uh, yeah. But we had some history of doing single player yeah. games. But but so the closest thing uh, to that I had done was my cricket game. Mm-hmm. So the, the cricket game, Little Master Cricket, is you, you you've got cricket balls flying towards you, and you have a guy whose uh, bat is on a mouse. Okay. And you move the mouse, and his body moves, and the the bat follows the mouse. So right. it's a really kind of like a related idea. Okay. Um, and I had, of course, I'd made uh, Super Pole Riders for Sports Friends, where you're a guy who uh, has a flexible pole that you use the, the kind of um, the sticks of the controller to, yeah. to rotate around you, and that's your kind of method of locomotion. That kind yeah. of Which those, is also sim- it's reminiscent. Right. Those, those two games kind of put me in a space that had me, uh, you know, that was what I was thinking about. And I was teaching a class on European games, yeah. of the, mainly of the 80s and 90s. Because it kills me that uh, American video game fans 
don't know anything about the European corpus. So yeah. uh, they, they think video games all came from America and Japan. Yeah. And that's just not true. So yeah. I, I ran, wanted to run a class. So, selectively. Colleague. Selectively, Selec we yeah. know about Another World. And Lemmings, we, yeah. We know about Lemmings. We know about about Bullfrog yeah. stuff. We know about uh, occasionally yeah. the, the Bitnap Brothers. Grand Theft Auto. That's true. Grand Theft Auto. Though I don't think people really think of those as being British games. Maybe Elite. Maybe XCOM. Yes. But anyway, so I, I wanted to run this class with my colleague, uh, Clara Fernandez-Varas, Spanish, yeah. and she, was, she had similar interests. And uh, towards the end, we were running it roughly in chronological order, and towards the end, I wanted to look at sort of uh, things from the sort of early 2000s, kind of freeway era. Yeah. And I had gotten the students to play so many games this semester, like hundreds <laughs> of games. And then the only one that resonated with them at all, I think, was uh, Sexy Hiking, which is a, you know, uh, Czech game, uh, 2002. People say 2004, but you look at interviews from the guy who made it, um, Jazz Warriors, 2002. So it's really uh, a while back now. Um, and I was watching students playing that game, which I had kind of touched and gone, this is too frustrating. Like back back uh, earlier in my Tigsource days, um, I encouraged people to go and look at the sexy hiking thread on, on Tigsource front page because there's Adam Saltzman just ragging on it. He's so <laughs> angry about the game. I think I felt the same way, yeah. right? Like, just played it. It's like, oh, this is broken, stupid. Because we hadn't, we didn't have an enormous glut of really solid, well-designed puzzle platformers in indie games at right, that time. Right. That's what I wanted. And then this kind of weird shit, you know, these B games I didn't, didn't like. But I'm... I'm all this time has passed and the context has changed. I'm watching students just get really excited about sexy hiking. I'm like, this is definitely like a precursor of my cricket game and of my, of my uh, pole vaulting game in a way that I hadn't understood or really processed. Yeah. And then I was sort of like starting to get really fascinated with that. And still not a thing that I really wanted to play a lot of for the same <laughs> reasons. Um, but thinking about what I was going to do for a mouse-driven game. Yeah. And it was just sort of top of mind. And I was like, well, what if I made a game about that game? What does it mean to make a game that's... We, we, you know, video games are a, are a um, creative form that have been about copying from the start. Since, not just sampling. It really goes beyond that. Pong is a exact copy of Magnavox... Uh, well, it's not exact copy. It's an improvement. It's simplification, but a more or less a copy of Magnavox table tennis that uh, that the Atari guys had seen uh, closed doors demo of of the of the Odyssey and Space Invaders, you know, really important game, is a straight up, not in a bad way, but it's a straight up reskin of. Uh, what is it? Periscope is like a one of the slightly earlier 1970s video game where you're shooting missiles up the screen at subs, and that in itself is a clone of a uh, of a of a electromechanical game with the exact mm. same set of mechanics. Mm. Can't remember which one is Periscope and which one is Seawolf. One of them is the electromechanical game. Probably Periscope because I think Seawolf is a digital game. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So you're right. So so the guy who made um, Space Invaders cites Seawolf, right, as the inspiration. Yeah. And the Seawolf thing is just very clearly a digital ap uh, adaptation of an electromechanical game. Yeah. 
And so it's right there at the, at, and, you know, the history of our, of our form has been really about that. Yeah. But, you know, Space Invaders doesn't reference Seawolf, right? It doesn't right. talk about Seawolf. Right, right. It's just improving it, right? Yeah. And that's fine. I'm not, I'm not against that. I think that's where the whole thing has come from. But I think, like, what would it mean to make a game that was explicitly about another uh, yeah. game? Let's explore it. Let's, uh, let's do that. Because I'd also been playing uh, Beginner's Guide, which pretends to be about another game. Right. It's not. It's like, what if it was for real about another yeah. game? Somebody else's game. What an exciting idea to make a game where you explore somebody else's work. Right. How much more... I mean, I love The Beginner's Guide, but how much more edgy and interesting and alive would it seem, in a way, maybe impossible, but if if, if that was for real, yeah. uh, a person's work inside that game. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's... Those two things came together, and I, I, that's where that game came from. So, so you wanted to make this game basically about sexy hiking. Mm. This, this very obscure game, and very, you know. Okay, so why did you start putting your own name on your games? <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean that's like that's like a whole separate rant that I that I would start. But in a nutshell, you can make a small rant. I have I'll felt for a long time like there's two things that I don't like about the current state of games, particularly games made by solo developers. I get I definitely understand that we have a we're working in a in a field where a lot of work is done by groups collaboratively and nobody wants to take credit for other people's effort and something that's really collaborative should be presented as a collaborative piece of work. But it's such a strong cultural norm in games to not put people's names next to the work that even solo work, uh, so often, I was watching like Martin Yonason always puts together a YouTube playlist of IGF trailers, tra trailers for games that are entered in the IGF. Yeah. And so many of those trailers, I watched 500 of them back to back. It was grueling. <laughs> so many of them start with four or five logos and company names when I know they were designed and created from nose to tail by one person. And it's like people are trying to disappear from their game. So this, mm. this was the thing that was on my mind. It was on my mind that Konami had tried to erase uh, Hideo Kojima from, from the box art for Metal Gear Solid V, and he had responded by putting credits everywhere in that game. Yep. <laughs> and it's on my mind that a lot I see a lot of interactions between people playing games and the people who make them where there's obviously a bit of a misunderstanding about how especially solo authored and small team games are made where the, the players think that everything is made by a big corporation with like a bunch of employees and they use like collective pronouns and, and uh, make a bunch of assumptions that seem to come out of, uh, of like a, a, the wrong idea about how personal work is, right? right? And I don't like that. I, what, I, what I aspire to for, for games is that personal work will be seen as personal work and that players will know who the developer is and give a shit and know something about the, the designer and, and 
maybe be interested in, uh, like they liked 868 hack, maybe they should also be interested in playing Imbroglio and they, they should also be interested in playing Cinco Powers. And, yeah. um, that's not happening as much as I would like it to be happening. So, so that is the thing, but it's, Started as a joke with this speed chess. Um, it was just a joke about Sid Meier. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was like, wouldn't it be funny if you were egotistical enough to put your name in the title of the game? Right. But once I did that as a joke and I started to think more about the kind of politics of it and it started to seem like a transgressive thing to put your name there. Right. It's like you're breaking a norm, both for players and for designers. Well, and I think that the place that that comes from originally, like the, the you know, Sid Meier's apostrophe, co- comes from a generational place that was actually very genuine and positive, which was the, the sort of, like, electronic arts and early Activision, like, actually putting, and, and Infocom, you know, putting the designers' names or the, you know, kind of lead developers' names above the title, mm. which was you know, meant to right. be like, we are going to show the people responsible for this as part of the work and, and not try to replace right. them. Right. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's a thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a thing that comes out of uh, tabletop gaming or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if there's like a history of, of, uh, of war games or something like that, that, that used this particular style for presenting things, but it's always been the outlier. And it's a yeah. American McGee's uh, Alice. Yeah. Uh, there's Sid, Sid Meier's Civilization. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the full list of, of, of times that's... Tony that's Hawk's it. Pro Skater. Yeah, three. right. <laughs> Good program at Tony Hawk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because that's that's where it is normal, if you've got like a celebrity to yeah. attach to it. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like you're, you're being incredibly egotistical. I'm, mm. I'm enough of a celebrity designer, I can put my name there. Right. But... That's, yeah, so that's, I, I do that knowing that people will take it that way. Yeah. And. But I think it's a lot, that. I think that it's more, I think it is more deeply in dialogue with the game in getting over it because the, the, so, okay, again, let's explain the game slightly. I'll do it this time. Mm-hmm. You're a man trapped in a cauldron, and all you have is a sledgehammer to pull yourself up a mountain of garbage. Yeah. While Bennett Foddy talks to you about his de- design philosophy behind making this thing that you're playing. Right. <laughs> so that's a real game. Just to be clear, that's a real thing that I just described, and incredibly popular. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, A, that seems wildly unlikely, which is super interesting. Mm. But B, I think that the fact that it says getting over it with Bennett Foddy and you are sharing these kind of very personal, not like personal about your personal life, but like personal right. as far as your actual beliefs yeah. about yeah, my the game and why you make games and why you made this game and what your relationship to the player is in your own voice and introducing yourself as the person who is expressing these things through what you're playing. Right. It's, it's, it is very much of a piece well, with attribute, the entire experience. I attribute a lot of this to Nina, actually. Um, I, when Nina was first working on Sybil, she made the prototype for that in my class. Yeah. And I was the academic advisor on the thesis version of that. Yeah. And so I was looking at that d- develop. And Nina, I think, knew from the moment she made the prototype 
what she wanted to do there. She just had a very clear, at least that's how it seemed to me. Uh, she had a very clear idea of what she was about. And what she's doing there is, I think at least, humanizing herself as a creative person in an industry that voluntarily dehumanizes the the designer and the developer. Yeah. And she's doing it by putting her putting the player in kind of a weird uh in a in a contact, in a human contact with her by embodying them in in her lived experience. You yeah. get to be Nina playing right. playing uh Sybil. Right. But you also observe her yeah. video. It switches you, right? Where it's, like, where it's very much Right. Her as an individual who you're seeing right. and her as a perspective that you're inhabiting. But those moments where you are taken out of the the in, embodied experience of Nina and you see her from, from outside, it's almost like it intensifies the feeling of being Nina. And Well, it intensifies the connection of this experience to an individual, actual human, not like an actor she hired. or so, You know, it's like, here is the person. Right. Um, but that yeah was so exciting to me. Like they just the more that I thought about it, because I had to think about it a lot. We were discussing it over and over again, and the more that I thought about it, the more it, it sort of uh, it, again, sort of like interestingly transgressive that seemed to yeah. me. And um, I didn't want to do the same thing. I don't think I could do the same thing. I don't think anybody uh, is as like very few people are as uh as as brave as Nina to be able to kind of put her actual self out there in that r- sort of really raw unguarded way. Yeah. I definitely can't do that. I'm not able. But I knew I knew I wanted to to kind of um to to erode this the, the boundary in some way that 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 would make sense to me. Yeah. And the way that it makes sense to me is to be with the player through through playing the game in some sort of way. Yeah, uh, and the more that I, I sort of followed that thread, and yeah. it kind of it kind of flowed from there. Do you ever think about how weird it is that like there's just gonna there's gonna be like thousands of kids who like grew up like when they were like ten, like that like you are the, the, the when they're older they'll be like oh yeah I've spent so much time trying to beat that game and there was that guy yeah oh what, was his name Bennett. Yeah. They're talking about you. Yeah. It's fucking weird. It is. It's cool. It's not a I'm I'm not complaining. It's just so surreal sometimes to put things out into the world, especially when you as an individual are part of them and and someone is in some way bringing you as an individual into their life experience through that work. Well, not I mean, just the work. It, yeah, I mean it, and it's not something that is sort of it seems like it's supernatural to me over the course of my life. You know, I, I like many people in games grew up thinking of myself as an introverted person. Couldn't bear the sound of my voice recorded. It's very self-conscious about how idiotic my name sounds. Um, Confidential to Bennett Foddy. Don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> I won't. Okay, good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I... So, so in some ways, making a game like that is an exercise in forcing myself into an uncomfortable zone. Sure. And yeah, but it's like thinking about that, thinking about um, some, probably not the majority of people who play the game, but some of them probably do perceive that that's me in there and that they sort of know something about me as a result of playing the game. And maybe for some of them, 
that stays with them and that's like a, a style of of not just a unusual thing in a video game but an unusual thing in an artwork i think yeah um because because of how we experience games differently from 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 other artworks and i don't know like that's, that's an exciting thing to me if 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 there was just even one player who who's understanding what a game is and who makes them and and how they relate to the person who made them is changed a little bit by this process yeah yeah so you also followed your i mean we could talk for another long amount of time about why you are drawn to making games that are incredibly difficult and frustrating and aggressive in their their confrontation with the player um i think it's i think it's worth talking about because something that i think something i think must be vindicating about the fact that getting over it is you know very popular Mm. and and gained a lot of you know attention and 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 following from a lot of people is that i feel like from my outside interpretation that part of what you care about is the fact that things don't have to be easy for people to care about them or like them you know that that there's this feeling that on some level it goes against conventional knowledge to say here's this insanely hard fiddly just punishing game about climbing over a mountain of garbage nobody's gonna like this actually people are capable of investing themselves to the point that they get obsessed with it and that they do want to play that role in trying to best this machine through their effort and that that's something that we don't see a lot of yeah and that i feel like you appreciate and that i feel like getting over it is is an expression of and that people's reaction to it kind of proves out the the thesis in some way i'm trying to get away from talking in terms of difficulty I've started to believe that the idea of difficulty is bogus. Well, how would you phrase it? Because it's incredibly difficult to finish the game you made. Yeah, but that's... I mean, it's incredibly difficult to finish Final Fantasy VII because it takes 40 hours, right? My game doesn't take 40 hours. So, which is more difficult? You know... I mean, well, yeah, I think it is... I think it is more difficult for any average individual to gain the facility to finish your game than it is for any average individual to have 40 hours available i, I think it's, 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 it's such fine a if mo- you have a different we like, mean so like, many interpretation different... of, of what that is so but i mean if we want to talk about a specific kind of difficulty because I, I don't think you would argue that your game isn't difficult it's just a specific kind just, of request yeah, think, that it has of the player i think that thinking about the thing about it as being that it's difficult well D- how, difficulty how would you, how would you describe a... what the thing about it yeah is then so for, in diffi- this particular difficulty case. is such an overloaded term, and I, I think in this case you're using it to mean a lot of different things. One of the things about it is that it makes you feel intense emotions that we sometimes associate with negativity, so yeah. anger, frustration, right, loss. Yeah. So is that that's a component of what we mean by difficult? But I don't think that's a that much of a puzzle that people would be attracted to that, right? Because we like. Scary games. We like Slender Man games. We like games that, that involve a lot of aggression. We like games that make you sad. We like uh, we like a lot of, of things that we think of as, as negative emotions in our arts. It shouldn't okay. be that strange, really. How else is it difficult? It's indifferent to whether or not you finish it. 
Is that a dimension of, of difficulty? Well, probably. That's partly what you mean when you say that a game is difficult. Is that Well, how do you mean that it's indifferent as to whether you finish it? it, it I mean, it, you roll credit to the end, right? I do, but okay. I, if you reach a point where you can't progress, it doesn't do anything beyond saying, you're probably going to get through this eventually if you keep trying. Right. Uh, or something to that effect. Which is, interestingly, I mean, that's effectively the same relationship that we have to the player in our games, where we're like, continue to play if you want to, right? and when you get to the end, you will have done that, but there isn't, like... You, you aren't saying, like, oh, you didn't dodge that laser, so you died, try again. Right. Right? You're like, the end is over there if you I mean, want to get to it. Well, I mean, those games where you dodge a laser and you die, try again, are actually pretty rare now. I mean, if the if we take the Dark Souls series which is renowned for its difficulty and indifference to the player, yeah. you're constantly gaining forward progress no matter how poorly you play. You've, you may lose your souls, but you're constantly locking in little bits of progress. You don't lose your gold. You don't lose items you picked up. You're constantly making little bits of forward progress in that RPG st style. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we think of, of, of games that, that don't do that, uh, that, that don't try to push you through the experience in any way, that don't funnel you, that don't have RPG elements, is now characterized as difficult. <laughs> but that's just like, it's a lot to say something's difficult. It's not that it's false. It's just that it's a very overloaded term. And so, so I'm trying to get away from it, not right. because I don't think my game is difficult. I, it's difficult. It's just, it's just it's not clear what I mean when I right. say that a game is difficult. Right. So what is, the, what, is, what is the aspect, what is the more useful well so these are the two things i'm interested in here. i mean talk I'm, about with, i'm interested in indifference trying. i mean in dis interested in that because of the kind of um how that generates a different experience for for right. people versus vis-a-vis -vis other games it's like um i don't like the feeling of desperation that a game evinces when it has rpg elements like it desperately can't stand for you not to see the end of the game right that seems so thirsty to me. I just hate. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Go on. You've already made the sale. You don't have to like, you know, I, I just, so that, that is part of it. And the other part of it is I am interested in, and I like that sense that, that visceral sense of frustration that games can give you. Right. I, and, I, and so, I gravitate towards games that generate that. I like right. it. I wanted to kind of maximize it. Right. And, and I haven't, so I personally haven't gotten very far through your game because it's difficult right. to do that. Right. Um, but uh, I, I did at least get to one of the, the pieces of narration where you talk about not wanting to have to get through the bitter rind to get to the sweet fruit it's wanting the bitterness right and the the black coffee and right. the grapefruit you yeah know, like I tried and, to pick things that people like to eat that we would characterize as bitter right and so talking about yeah it not being something to draw you to the nice stuff but that the hard stuff is what it actually is yeah 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 hard or bitter or frustrating or just that particular flavor right cooking with that flavor of, of emotional experience do you have do, are, are there are there like pro getting over it players are there people that can just like speed run it without falling easily yeah. oh yeah that's amazing yeah the world record is like a minute 40 and, and can, can that guy can that player do a minute do do them between a minute 40 and two minutes consistently i've seen his fails yeah yeah but it doesn't look like it's relying on flukes he just knows yeah. it yeah yeah and um 
his first time was in the order of four or five hours. So oh wow, that's an incredible compression. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, because because on some level that's that. Yeah, the game is trivial. You beat it, beat it in a minute and a half. Well, and there's something that is that, but that's something that I think is one of those almost kind of like holy grail game design things of wanting to make something that is very difficult to master, but that people are capable of gaining incredible facility with. That someone can make it look easy, right? But it is not easy for almost anyone, you know. Right, right, right. I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm... It's, it's one of the things that I think is interesting about the Souls games is that feeling of something that felt impossible now feels trivial yeah. to me. Um, well, so, okay, so... And so, it's important, the Delta, right? right. The Delta... What the, the best moment in Dark Souls 1 is you, you, you found it so hard at the beginning, first 10 hours, very, very slow progress, and then you kind of cracked it open. And you get really good at it and you get to the point where none of those basic monsters do you any kind of threat whatsoever. Uh, you're never being harmed by them. And the delta is huge. And then you're just wandering back through the kind of chapel area and one of those little level one enemies ganks you and you die. <laughs> and you realize that that risk is still there. It's, it's that you've become this vigilant person, this kind of hyper vigilant person and that something changed in you as a person. And, you know, I, I love that. And I, I think part of it in, in getting over it, you're partly you're learning skills. You get like, yeah, you get better as a, as a kind of skill player. Yeah. You understand the system better. But part of it that, that a lot of people at the end of the game, when I talk to them, uh, one of the things that they say is, um, I was finding it very frustrating and very like, it was very, it was angering me and I was getting really frustrated and, and angry and I, you know, threw my mouse. But then there was a point where I fell after making a lot of progress. I lost a lot of progress, and I just it, it just stopped me. Like it just it broke. It just snapped, and I never felt any frustration ever again. Huh. And and for the rest of the game, every time I fell, it was kind of a Zen moment that I enjoyed. Yeah. And that I think is so fascinating. It's like the the kind of the flip the flipping the the moment where your personality flips. Yeah. And something in you changed. Yeah. And that we have like a moment that you can point to where that changed in you and that you became a different person is, is like such a gratifying thing from a designer's point of view. So provoking people to that point where they learn a new facet of their personality, that's, that's for me the best. <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah. That, yeah. What, what do you think it is that makes you care about them. Like you, you have a thesis that it feels like you're chasing, like, you know, and why, why is this the thing you care about as a person? I think as a player of games or as a consumer of art, I'm always looking for the moment, the, the epiphany moment, the, the moment that changes me in other people's art. And the reasons I liked uh, Stephen Lavelle's game, Stephen Sausage Roll so much is I felt like I had to go through a series of those to get to the end. I had to become a different kind of game player maybe a different kind of person to be able to get to the end of that game. And that's what's most meaningful to me in a consumer of art. And that means as a designer, I just, as, a, as an artist, I aspire to give that to other people. The hope when you're making video games is that it's not a trivial, pointless 
pursuit making toys for babies right the absolute lowest of tacky low culture right that's the current the constant feeling of paranoia you have as a person who's devoting their life to making video games and to teaching other people to make video <laughs> games is you don't want it to be what your grandmother thinks it is which is a <laughs> colossal waste of time and if you can see evidence that your work is impacting people and changing how they think about things or how they feel emotions then it can't be a waste of time then it can't be like maybe that sounds kind of hopelessly defensive but it's like that's real for me it it i believe in artistic pursuits as something that is is meaningful and positive and and can can drive meaningful and good and bad change in the world and if i didn't believe that i would have to go and do something that was that was more concrete not philosophy probably but something something else yeah um but i do believe it i do believe that there is a kind of a, a concrete reality to the effects of of artwork on human beings and on culture and on politics and that's why it's like when you see evidence of that in your work those are the great moments but you also find it kind of funny maybe <laughs> <laughs> Because I also think you like trolling people. I think I think you because there, there's definitely and I and those things can live together. They can be good. Yeah. But I feel like there's a there's a level of amusement that you get <laughs> out of what you put people. I would through. say playfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's that dichotomy of I made this game for a certain kind of person to hurt them. <laughs> yeah. I think that you know, if a, if a game can't be playful, well, you're asking the player to be playful. Yeah. You've got to set the tone somehow. Yeah. That's all it is for me. Yeah. And it's got to be fun for me. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes at people's expense. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking about all this with me, Bennett. It's been super interesting. It's, it's always a, a pleasure. And as I say, you know, I'm, I'm in this whole gig for these sorts of conversations. Yeah. I want to say like the first time I was at GDC 2012, I did an interview with, uh, I think you were there for Idle Thumbs uh, podcast. Yeah. And I think that might have been the first time we talked. It probably was, yeah. Because then probably Chris probably reached out to you and then I talked did, to yeah. you before, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that was a turning point moment for me because it was the first time I'd been, you know, coming out of philosophy and music where nobody wants to talk about video games at all. To get to talk to people who are switched on and thinking about your work, I was like, maybe I can have these conversations <laughs> inside of this uh, in this culture, in this scene. Oh, that's so cool. And that was like, it was a huge moment for me. So yeah, I appreciate it. Always any chance I can get for this kind of conversation. I appreciate it. That's, that, that's amazing to hear. Well, I'm glad that, that we could help contribute in a little way to, to what you've done. Yeah. Um, I'll look forward to seeing what else you, you have, <laughs> how else you hurt people in the future. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you again for your time and I hope the rest of your GDCs are great. Ones.